Hi, and welcome to the Hopeless Romantic Critique of the Untouchable Elite. I'm your host, Kelsey Farrell, and today you're going to hear my story. Look, he drives his family's old minivan. I said this pretty much every time I saw him in the parking lot sophomore year. He was one of the few people who could drive then. I didn't have a crush on him at this point. I simply was intrigued by the family minivan, and as an outsider, I saw it only for its insinuation of noble parents, the kind of thing good rich people do. I would point it out, and my mom would say something like, well, his parents are doing a really honorable job of raising him, and we'd both agree very much that they were impressively humble and down-to-earth. Being the son of the CEO of Netflix wasn't an identity that Dean seemed quick to embrace. Dean was quiet and under the radar. He wore baggy, nondescript clothes that looked like they came from a Ross dress for less. He never spoke about his dad or bragged about his background. For the first few months that we dated, he hid the fact that he had a movie theater in his basement. I only found out when his father, Reed, let it slip. At first, I felt like Dean really distanced himself from his background. Uh, He didn't act like a spoiled brat. He was one of the crowd. He was humble in ways I never even considered being humble. After the blood drive at our school one day, he walked out with the band-aid, the gauze, and the I donated blood sticker crumpled up in his fist rather than pasted on his shirt, feeling that it was wrong to praise himself for such a simple act. And I loved him for that. I loved him for being not at all a stereotype. The first time we had sex was like a scene from a movie. I planned it all out like a director. I even chose the soundtrack. It was an iron and wine song called The Trapeze Swinger. There were three specific words that were in the refrain. Please remember me. I think I chose it because I already knew that Dean was absolutely going to leave me. And so those three words were more important than I love you because they were going to be true forever and I couldn't guarantee anything other than that. I wrote the perfect scene when I strung the lights around the room and when I ran to him as soon as he returned home from a long time gone, two weeks in Istanbul when we crept out of his room in the summer heat to go somewhere special. I was the author writing the perfect story, unknowingly orchestrating a poignant foreshadowing I've never been able to top, even when writing fiction. Despite all I had learned from reading books upon books, I failed to see the significance of where we were and what that might mean. The guest house, created to house things that are not meant to last forever, designed for the intention of temporary stay. I was a guest to the wealth that made such a house in the first place, to Dean, and to love. We sealed our love and joined our souls in the place that holds things with an expiration date. I think part of me knew that we were doomed. Um, I was good at denying it, but certain things stand out as blatant examples of my insecurity over our relationship. The song, first of all, with the lyric, please remember me, I was drawn to it, admitting my folly with my subconscious. But it was more than the song. I knew we only had a few years and I tried to cram a lifetime into it. When we grow up, what color will our house be? How many kids do you want to have? How close are we going to live to your parents? I pestered Dean with questions of what if, and I would lose myself in imaginations that he had contributed to. Every night before I fell asleep, I immersed myself in these thoughts. It was a way to spend time with Dean, even when we were not with each other, even when we had to sleep in separate beds on opposite sides of town. There's definitely a reason why... Rich people aren't friends with poor people. Try to imagine it, really, like a billionaire attempting to be friends with someone who makes minimum wage. The billionaire would say, what are you up to this weekend? And the poor person would say, I'm working at 7-Eleven, trying to get enough money to buy groceries for my kids. And the billionaire would say, that's nice, I'm going to be on a yacht in Mallorca. The billionaire might say they're going wine tasting. The poor person might say they're going to a free medical clinic where they'll wait in line for hours. 
Every moment of their friendship would be permeated with the structures of oppression that benefit some and hurt others. And over and over again, one person would benefit and the other person would hurt. And how could the disadvantaged individual not see how the privileges of the billionaire were a wasteful expanse that kept them from having the bare minimum? How could one not blame them for their complicity and inequality? Would you really be able to consider them a friend? I don't think so. There's some obstacles too intense to overcome. But I was not a poor person, and that's why I was able to date Dean for as long as I did. Um, It's why I was able to give him a chance in the first place. I imagine if I was born into more adverse circumstances, I'd know well before 16 to not get involved with a billionaire son, but I was privileged enough to not know of our difference. I was naive enough to not see the details until I was already in love and desperate to make it work. It strikes me as akin to Pride and Prejudice, the first book my class read at the beginning of my senior year for AP Literature. Dean and I both had it assigned, and we each owned a Penguin Edition paperback of the story. Elizabeth was not poor, she was a gentleman's daughter, just as Darcy was a gentleman, and thus, while he was far wealthier, she asserted that she still had enough privilege to be with him. Is this not parallel to my story? I'm white, I lived in the wealthy county of Santa Cruz, I grew up in a big house. What speaks to how privileged I was and still am is the fact that I had the opportunity to go to the same school as the son of the CEO of Netflix. Surely, if that school was good enough for a billionaire's child, the fact that I, too, could go there points to me winning the lottery in terms of where we are born and to whom. And I owed this chance in part to Reed because he was one of the people who had set the school up. He was one of the donors who kept it afloat. So, yes, he had the power to be benevolent. But is this not an insane risk to assign people this role in society to give them such power through money to determine so much of reality? Is it not precarious to give people power that could so easily go either way? A billionaire could donate to a cause you support wholeheartedly, but they could also donate to a cause you abhor. Instead of accepting this high-risk, high-reward scenario where the rich are maybe on your side, we should have a democratic society that doesn't function like this at all. Why applaud billionaires who do the right thing when you could instead ask why they have the power to do anything so dramatic at all? But Reed was one of those people. I started to watch the Hastings Mail after a few months. Um, I couldn't help but be curious. It was always there on the counter. For over a year, I watched mail come from Hillary Clinton. Some were larger envelopes, even packages sometimes. Some were regular size. They looked like they might be delivered to anyone. But the volume of mail made it increasingly clear that the Hastings had to be in an elite circle of donors. Once I saw an unopened card, a thank you note that I'm fairly certain she'd handwritten. It was pretty disturbing to think how obviously bought this politician was. During the rise of Bernie Sanders, who Dean and I supported in the primary, it was really difficult to watch. I made tentative efforts to engage Reid and ask him about his political beliefs. Um, One time I asked him why he supported Hillary Clinton's foreign policy. I don't know anything about it, he said. I could have pressed him more to shame him for his blind support, but instead I stayed silent. I feared seeing an uglier side of Reid, a side I didn't like. Reed was like the fun parent I never had. He would take me out to dinner all the time, something that my parents did maybe once a year. And when we were there, he would let me order dessert. He had no criticisms of me. He loved me. He praised me for my high grades. And at multiple occasions would would boast to others that I was straight A's, top of the class. It was deeply flattering. I felt like I was his kid and he was the parent I'd always wanted to have. Reed called me the wonder girlfriend, and he told everyone, including my parents, that I had opened up the world for Dean and brought him out of his shell. He seemed to be grateful for me for doing what he couldn't accomplish, getting Dean to live. Before me, he had been cooped up in his room, playing video games for hours, high on edibles, with minimal effort ascribed to everything. 
But when we started dating, he went out more. From our very first date onward, he never smoked weed again for the rest of our relationship. Teachers even told me that since dating me, he was doing better in school, participating more in class and contributing to discussion. For a while, we were really worried about Dean, his parents told mine when they met. Kelsey's been an amazing influence. They loved me. I know they did. And I love them too, so much. And because I loved them all wholeheartedly, I remained complacent even when I saw things that bothered me. On one of our very first dates, I told Dean that my sister went to UC Berkeley. My cousin goes there too, he replied, and then he hesitated and confessed that he wasn't sure if his cousin still went there or not. He graduated, I asked. No, he got into trouble with his fraternity, and I'm not sure if he still goes to school there. I felt a rise of concern. Anyone who hasn't been living under a rock knows that trouble with a fraternity is code for a crime of a sexual nature. But it was our third date. Dean's cousin's actions weren't Dean's. Did I really know everything about all of my cousins? Certainly not. So I let it pass. But I knew of Berkeley's unfortunate history with sexual assault. My sister went there, and I remember watching the news a week after my family had dropped her off. There had been a segment on a UC Berkeley student in a frat whose charges of drugging and raping a woman at a party were being dismissed. Um, I don't think I can say his real name, so I am going to call him Dick Quaalude. And if he really did like drug and rape somebody, then that's a very uh, fitting name. So... Yeah, and I remembered his name because um, it was kind of unusual. It was like old fashioned and it was a last name I had never heard before. Um, so yeah, in the segment, only a few minutes long, the news described what he was accused of, talked about two other rapes the same weekend and ended with a shot of the Campanile. Months and months later, I showed up at Dean's house and his family was Skyping his cousins. There were three boys. Dick goes to Berkeley, I was introduced. They all said hi to me. We've heard a lot about you, said Dick. I said hi back, and I remembered that Dean's mom's last name was Quaalude. I said, nice to meet you. I walked with Dean back to his bedroom, and I said nothing. Less than 5% of rape accusations are false. Later, I tortured myself looking up the story. The lawyer that Dick had is the same one Barry Bonds had. The attorney was this well-known Bay Area lawyer who had claimed a victory at the Supreme Court level. His law firm's website reported that for years on end, he has been named as one of the best criminal defenders in California. Did your parents pay for Dick's lawyer, I asked Dean. I don't know, he answered truthfully, and I don't think I want to know. I mean, I know that Dick stayed at our house when all this was happening, so it doesn't reflect well, does it? No, it doesn't, I agreed. Dick's charges were cleared and the records were erased because he was deemed, quote, factually innocent. Factually innocent was a term that I read over and over again. I looked up the law clause that he was able to gain freedom from, a loophole that got him out of even having a record of his arrest. All the websites said it means you have a really, really good, fast-working lawyer that clears your name before you even go to trial. In California, for example, someone who was arrested or charged but not convicted can petition for the sealing and eventual destructions of any records of arrest, says criminaldefenselawyer.com. There's even a claim in an article that Jane Doe agreed with the final conclusion. Was there an unreported settlement? Was money thrown at this problem? One of the things that makes me the most suspicious isn't even Dick himself, though. It's Dean's mom. One of her projects is to decide which documentary films Netflix will fund and feature. 
At dinner sometime during the second semester of our senior year, she asked if, 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 we, if we had heard of The Hunting Ground, a documentary that detailed the pervasive problem of college campus sexual assault. Yes, I said, actually, Feminist Coalition, which was my club, is doing a screening of it for senior class. Well, would you say that a documentary about high school sexual assault is relevant? I'm looking at funding one, and part of that funding would go to high school education programs, and I just want to know if you think that's something that you feel is needed. Yes, absolutely, I said. Dean nodded his head with a mouthful of spaghetti. The boys really need to watch it, she said, looking off into the distance. The boys really need to watch it. I saw a conflict in her. I think she was trying to make up for the white privileged man that she was complicit in excusing from the consequences he perhaps deserved. So what is this act? What does it mean to fund these films? Is this redemption or is this hypocrisy? But alternative realities were easy to accept. I rarely saw a dick. When I did, he was gregarious and fun. The whole time I was around him, I felt uncomfortable, but I didn't know how to get out of seeing him if Dean wouldn't take a stand. Dean's sister had successfully cut off contact with him over the incident. So why don't you, I asked Dean, wishing that he would so that I would stop feeling obligated to play along. I don't know, he said. I really don't want to deal with it. And so complicity grew, and I was guilty as well. But to challenge this was to challenge the Hastings, and I didn't want to lose them when I felt like they were my family, and I was their third child. I spent every waking second at their house. Dean's mom made me special vegetarian dinners. They didn't care that we were having sex with each other, which was absolutely forbidden by my own parents. They started inviting me to go on their vacations with them, always giving Dean and I a room to ourselves. They embraced me as their daughter-in-law, and I felt a part of the family. Walking into their house was coming home. But I wasn't their daughter, and painfully cracks began to appear. The first one crept up on me as we both began to consider college. We got together in January of our junior year, and Dean was already flying out of state over and over again to visit colleges. He had a college counselor already that his family had privately hired. I didn't. So where are you applying to? I asked Dean at the beginning of senior year. I anxiously wanted to know so that I could map out ways for us to stay together. I don't know, he said. I'll have to look at the list that my college counselor gave me. Why did she make it and not you? I asked. Because she knows where the best places to study computer science are, Dean shrugged and logged into his portal that detailed the list that had been prepared for him. I remember looking at it. Why would you want to go to UCSB, I asked. You hate party culture. I don't know. I guess they have good computer science, he shrugged. I noticed that Dean had an Ivy League university on his list, and I laughed out loud. Dean's weighted GPA was lower than my unweighted GPA. His extracurricular list was made up of the clubs I was president of that he joined when we started dating, with a few volunteerism ventures that his mom had signed him up for over the summers. I had straight A's and more extracurriculars than I could count on my fingers, and even I was aware that it very well might not be enough to get into an Ivy League. I was embarrassed that Dean thought he had a chance, and I was a little offended that he felt it was a place he should go when it was I, not him, who had done the work to earn such a spot. But I ignored it. I thought that at the end of the day, Ivy League schools wanted good students, and that was what I was, much more so than Dean. But it became clear that Dean really wanted to go to the Ivy League. Um, he applied early decision, and it really irked me. Early decision commitments are contractual obligations. If you choose to go down this path, you commit to paying tuition months before financial aid decisions are granted to students. It means you can only apply early if you're rich enough to not need that financial aid at all. You sign on to pay the Ivy League tuition plus room and board, $70,000 a year. The richer, earlier decision group had an acceptance rate of 19% that year. 
the poorer regular group of applicants had a 9% acceptance rate. I was livid that Dean's financial security gave him a better statistical chance than me and everyone else. One day, I went to Dean's house to cook with his family. We were all together in the kitchen, and I loved that they'd invited me over for it. I was really one of them in that moment, and they really wanted me in their family, and I belonged. How was your day, Dean? Reed asked Dean in his jovial way that always charmed me. I had my Ivy League interview today. It was fine. Here we go, I thought. I had had enough of Dean's pipe dream. Every time it came up, I felt like he was appropriating my future. But I never expected what happened next. Reed said, great, I'll have Tim put in a good word for you. So casually, so nonchalantly, I had to somehow confront him. My heart was thudding, and somehow it felt even painful. But the only way I'd ever been able to criticize anything in this house had been through good-natured jokes, and they were always able to make Reed laugh. So I said, can Tim put in a good word for me, too? Oh, you're applying also? Yeah. When's your interview? Well, I guess in the spring. Oh, so not applying early. He walked out of the kitchen to the dining table, sat down at his computer, and started typing. I sat down right across from him. Who's Tim? Tim is my friend who works in admissions. Why are you emailing him? He's going to write a letter of recommendation for Dean. But doesn't Dean already have letters of recommendation from his teachers who already know him? This is an extra letter, he smiled. Do you think that's fair? No, but life's not fair. Then it's our job as people to do our best to make it more fair. I mean, nature's not fair. You can see all the time that nature is unfair. Natural selection and all that. Unfairness is what is natural. I don't think so. Do you actually think this is morally right? It's morally questionable. But you're going to do it anyways. Look, he said. You probably think that everybody in the world should have the same chances and opportunities. Yes, of course, I replied. And I probably thought that way when I was your age. But when you're older, you'll understand. It's good that some people have more and others have less. I sat there in pure shock. I kept my mouth shut to hold back crying. My heart was like violently trying to escape from my body. I held back my tears and in my silence, Reed stood up, balancing his laptop in his palm. He started to read his email out loud. Dean has a knack for computer science, often on his computer trying out new ideas or reading about his interests on Reddit. He's often bored in school and looks forward to when he can focus entirely on computer projects. I can't remember the exact sentences or how it ended because I kept getting hurt by each successive thing that Reed said. It was a classic smart kid bored in school excuse to explain bad grades and it made me ill. A smart person is never bored because they can find intrigue in everything. Boredom wasn't intelligence to me, it was arrogance. I had ignored the lack of effort in school for a while when it came to Dean, accepting him for how he was. But once Reed tried to market Dean's bad work ethic as an example of intellect, it became repulsive. His presentation of Dean's time spent on Reddit and video games also appalled me. Reed talked about them like they were Dean's endless curiosity and desire to learn more about everything engaged with new challenges. But I knew these things were tools of procrastination and that the time Dean spent in his room, hour after hour, day after day, even more so before I came along, were anything but intellectual stimulation. These things had been stagnating Dean for a while. He often talked about them being a ridiculous but addicting use of time. But Reed had put Dean's worst qualities into a pretty paragraph and was selling him like a product. I think the saddest thing for me was that Dean had plenty of good qualities that were not in Reed's email at all. 
To me, this showed that Reed had a very acute awareness of Dean's flaws, and he was writing the email in an effort to erase the parts of Dean that Reed knew were weak. But Reed didn't seem to have an acute awareness of the parts of Dean that were strong, and perhaps that was the most tragic thing of all. Maybe Dean saw his father loving him and seeing him in a good light. Maybe Reed saw Dean getting his dream and the chance to be proud of a perfect son. And maybe Tim would see a genius crafted in Reed's words. But all I could see was how little Reed must believe in Dean at all to reach into his life and play God like that. I saw Reed hit send and close his laptop. It was all so easy for him. And I realized I was seeing corporate America in an internship I hadn't signed up for. The email was instinctual for Reed, and it disturbed me. This disregard for ethics, this pure display of cheating, had been so insanely rationalized by Reed. His jump to the idea that this decision could be justified by the order of nature didn't seem to spur of the moment, but rather a sad, long-crafted house of cards philosophy that helped him sleep at night. I sat there stunned for a while, then went back to the kitchen and robotically stirred the rice. I didn't talk for the rest of the cooking time. I was still swallowing over and over again, trying to keep myself from crying. The dumplings were eventually ready, and we were called over to eat them. They sat on a circular plate like markers on a sundial. There's 12 dumplings, so we should each get three, I said. Then I looked at Reed, and I said, Oh, wait. Do I only get two because life isn't fair? He turned bright red and broke his eye contact with me. Everyone else laughed, but I still wanted to cry. When Dean and I went back to his bedroom after dinner, I burst into tears. How could you let him send that email, I demanded. I don't know, he admitted. It just isn't something I can confront him about. I sobbed and sobbed, and I told him I couldn't believe he was okay with this. I'll email Tim and ask him not to write me the additional letter, Dean agreed. For the short term, this seemed to solve the problem. I didn't mean my in-laws to be good people, but I needed Dean to be. And it seemed he was willing to be that. But it it was a half-hearted attempt. I never saw the email. I don't know if he ever sent it. If he did, would this mysterious Tim actually listen to Dean, or would he defer to Reed's instructions? Regardless, I remember filling out the Ivy League application. They asked for parents' name, occupation, and place of work. I was putting my dad's name, (laughs) insurance agent, AAA. Dean was putting Reed Hastings, CEO, Netflix. They wouldn't ask for this information in an application if they didn't use it to choose between people. Which father do you think is going to donate more money? Which kid do you think will get in? Dean got his acceptance to an Ivy League at the end of the first semester of senior year. Wow, you must be so excited for Dean. I heard he got into an Ivy League, Piers would tell me. I had no idea what to say. If I wasn't happy for him, I appeared like a total bitch. But I couldn't reveal how he'd pulled it off either because it would effectively end our relationship if I were to be honest. It placed me in a deeply uncomfortable state because every mention of it was a reminder that I wouldn't be able to get to be with Dean long term. Dean avoided the topic of college for the most part, though, because he knew I didn't approve. And in our tiny bubble, we continued to love each other deeply with no problems. Ivy Leagues didn't exist in those moments when I'd lie in his arms lazily in the afternoons. It was an outside intruder coming to ruin our relationship. I postponed dealing with it, and part of me believed that Dean wouldn't actually go to the Ivy League. I believed in him so much and saw so much good in him that I thought he'd do the right thing. And when he saw me in the spring getting denied, waitlisted, and deferred from Ivy League after Ivy League, I thought it would hit him. He'd seen how hard I worked in high school. He'd laughed and told me not to care so much about my grades and blow off the homework like he was. But still, I'd stay up late working while he went to sleep. 
Then he saw himself get accepted into an Ivy League while I was rejected. How could that not unsettle him? There I was, one of the deserving applicants that people like him had screwed over by pulling the strings of privilege. And he was in love with me. How could that not be enough to guide him to do the right thing? He was going to do the right thing. I was sure of it. I hated private schools by the time college acceptances were in. I didn't want to go to one after I saw how corrupt they would be. I took my name off the wait lists. I turned down my guaranteed transfers. I accepted my offer at UC Berkeley. The Ivy League was on the East Coast. It was more than 3,000 miles away. Our love was increasingly impossible. The summer before we left for college was a sickly one. We knew our relationship was dying, and we put it in hospice care. I went to Alaska with Dean's family that last July. The week before we left, he confessed to me, mortified, that we were taking the private jet there. When I heard, I painfully Googled the cost of a private jet. It can cost up to $4 million to maintain a private jet for a year. I saw families from the documentary about clean water that I'd watched for AP Environmental Science stare me down inside my brain. One statistic festered in particular, lack of access to clean water and sanitation kills children at the rate equivalent to a jumbo jet crashing every four hours. So when we got on the plane, I couldn't help but tear up. At the four-hour mark of the flight, I sank into heavy sobs. Here I was, about to land in Alaska, safe, in the arms of wealth, as another plane full of children crashed. But being with Dean was always a performance of pushing those facts to the back of one's mind. Luxury is luxurious. It's enjoyable. When we boarded a private cruise ship solely rented out to his family, I was amazed and excited for the week. Dean and I had our own room and we could see whales from the window. It was hard not to get caught up in it. It was hard not to be excited and glad that I was there. Dean's extended family came with us. It meant that Dick came along. As per usual, I found myself pretending, as we all had in the past. The neater narrative was that he was just Dean's fun cousin. And as one of the younger people on the trip, he and his brother accompanied Dean and I on most of the excursions. After one hike on a beautiful, uninhabited island, our guide asked us to gather around for a group photo. We started to amble towards one another to get in frame, and Dick slung an arm around his sh- my shoulder. His hand dropped down, and it rested palm and fingers against my breast. Sometimes you touch someone in the wrong way, accidentally. I've done that before in a flurry of hands and moving people. I think everyone has, and I feel like it's an instinct to jerk your hand back like being burned, and to snap one's hand away like something has just lunged to bite it. And that's why, even though Dick's hand was light and still, I don't think it was accidental. It didn't grab, it didn't pinch in the violence we're taught to expect. It rested there casually like it was on an armrest. It lay against my breast and it didn't jerk back. One second, two seconds, three seconds, four. It felt heavier and heavier. I was frozen in place. All around me were men. Our tour guide, Dean, Dick's father, Dick's brother, Dick. Five seconds, six seconds, Dean turned to the side. He looked down and he saw the hand on my breast. He hesitated, staring. His mouth didn't open. He didn't even look at me. An eternity, the hand there resting like a piano player, gentle on the ivory before he presses the keys in harmony. Dick's eyes stared straight ahead, not looking at me or anyone else. All of us shuffled closer together for the photo, and the hand rose up from my breast to my shoulder. The camera clicked, and we dispersed. Did that just happen? We hiked down the mountain and got on a little jetty boat that took us back to the ship. All around me, people were milling about happy and undisturbed, and I realized as I looked at every face that they were his family and not mine. I realized I was trapped in the middle of the sea with a huge group of people who would never believe me. If I said anything, I'd ruin a multi-million dollar vacation. 
If I said anything, the next few days of the vacation would be extremely uncomfortable and awkward at best, and outright dangerous at worst. I was out in the middle of the sea, in international waters, with a very powerful family. I knew they'd protected Dick before when it came to allegations. If they aligned himself with him in the past, why wouldn't they the second time around? He was their flesh and blood, and I was the guest. I tried to imagine my future with Dean that night at dinner. I imagined having to invite Dick to our wedding. I imagined trying to keep track of my female guests, eyes searching, making sure that no one gets close to him. I imagined a future where I came clean and the whole family called me a liar. I imagined Dean not believing me. The boat got smaller and smaller and more and more crowded as the thoughts went on and on. Suddenly, I was in a very cramped space full of people I didn't trust. The ocean outside became impossibly vast as I realized the nightmare I was in. I was very far away from any other reality than the ship I was on, and I was very, very trapped. When we finally got up to our room, I held my breath and looked at Dean as I tried not to cry. I need to talk to you about something I said. I had a moment of hesitation wondering how I should say it, but I didn't have to. Dean said it for me. Dick's hand, he asked. I sighed with relief. So you did notice, I said. I mean, I didn't have just someone that believed me. I had a witness. Yes, he said, and his eyes sank in shame. What do you think, I asked. It was really weird how it was just so completely casual. It was like he didn't even notice it himself, he said. I know, it was surreal how subtle it was, I agreed. What do we do, I added. Dean looked at me sadly. I don't know, he said. He reached out and hugged me. We lay in bed and he rubbed my back, trying to comfort me in the strangeness of it all. I wanted his comfort, his protection, his safety. His lack of response to the incident made me want to beg for it even more, to find it in any form possible. I asked him if he wanted to have sex with me, and he consented. As it neared the end, I began to tear up, and in the afterglow, I was full-on sobbing. He held me and asked me what was wrong. Gentle and nice, as always. It made it even harder to cough up the words that I knew I had to say that night. Dean, we can't stay together for college. We held each other and cried together until we fell asleep. I said goodbye to Dean at the private jet section of the San Jose airport in September. I couldn't believe it was happening. I kissed him next to the jet and we hugged each other for as long as we could, tears streaming down both our faces. It's not too late to do the right thing, I told him. I still thought maybe he wouldn't go to the Ivy League. The Hastings chauffeur drove me back to the Berkeley campus listening to me sob. It's okay, Kelsey, he told me. Thanksgiving break isn't that far away. I didn't have the heart to tell him that we had broken up. Once we were in Berkeley, the chauffeur stepped out and helped me with my bags. He hugged me next to the minivan as I cried. In the end, Dean did not end up driving the minivan. He ended up on a private jet. Somewhere in the air, he was miles and miles above me. And the truth is that it had really been that way all along. So I was a freshman at UC Berkeley and I felt so lonely without Dean. I didn't really know that many people at Berkeley and it was hard to make friends. So Dean and I kept in touch for the first few weeks, even though we had agreed we weren't together together. But it was so hard for us to speak without fighting. I never wanted to hear what Dean was up to. I didn't want to hear about the Ivy League. I didn't want to see it in the background of the phone screen when we video chatted. It made me insanely jealous and insanely triggered, to be honest. So I would talk to him, but the relationship was obviously fucked because I didn't want to hear about his new life. One day I hung up on him when he told me how much he liked the Ivy League and how he knew he would never transfer. 
then he texted me and told me we needed to break up for real and stop talking. It was the day before my first midterm, and I'll never not be mad about that. I bombed the midterm. I had never done so badly on a test before. I started to just completely withdraw academically at that point. Um, I couldn't focus on anything. I went from someone who asked questions and participated to someone who merely showed up. Um, I procrastinated for the first time in my life. I just did a complete 180 in terms of what kind of student I was. I just could not focus. I could not function, and I could not care. I was completely distraught when we went no contact. I remember the day it happened, I cried behind the chemistry building because there were no people there. And then I walked back to my dorm. I wanted to watch something to take my mind off my troubles, so I logged on to Netflix. And there was a notification when I logged on. Your monthly subscription price is increasing, it said. And I felt chills down my spine. Like the coincidence was just too weird and it felt like the universe was playing a joke on me. And that's when I started to get paranoid for the first time in my life. Nights were sleepless and often spent on the suicide hotline that first semester at Berkeley. I was angry, so angry that Dean was at the Ivy League. I was angry that Dick had touched me and gotten away with it. I wondered over and over again, who was Jane Doe, the girl in Dick's case who had supposedly agreed with the conclusion that Dick was, quote, factually innocent? I would read articles over and over again about Dick, triggering myself purposefully and hoping that it would put me over the edge and give me the bravery to end my life. Slowly over the years, the article started to disappear from the internet. I don't think you can find any anymore. It's like the whole thing was erased. I needed to talk about my breakup. I was so distraught and just barely alive. I didn't really have any close friends yet, so I talked to my roommates and random acquaintances, blurting out how sad I was over the demise of my love. I would start to tell the story, and I would get really odd reactions whenever I mentioned that Dean was Reed Hastings' son. I can't believe you messed that up, they'd say. You don't want to date him anymore? Can I have his number? People were incredibly insensitive. They didn't want to hear that the relationship was painful. They believed, despite everything I told them, that dating someone rich was the best thing you could do with your life. They acted like now my life had no meaning. It would never be as good as it used to be when I was at the top. So slowly, I stopped telling people about it because I wanted to throw up every time someone told me how stupid I was for letting that relationship end. I decided I couldn't keep talking to random college kids, and I decided I needed professional help. So I went to free therapy on campus through UC Berkeley. The therapist seemed to think I was in the wrong when I described the situation. She defended Reed's email to the Ivy League. Um, I started to question my own morals and instincts and beliefs. I mean, everyone I talked to about the breakup at that point, including a therapist, was constantly bombarding me with how big of a mistake I made. You know, People I befriended at college, the therapists, they all acted like I was overreacting to Dean's choice to go to the Ivy League, and I started to doubt myself. Like, maybe I was being too persnickety, and I was miserable without Dean, so it was like I took away the love of my own life, creating my own suffering for a moral high ground that no one else believed in. Then Thanksgiving break was right around the corner, and Dean texted me after months of not speaking. I want to see you, he said, so I'm flying across the country to see you. What does this mean? I asked my college friends and my therapist, and they all said, he's obviously still in love with you. I started to ask myself, could Dean and I get back together? Could we make this work? I saw him over Thanksgiving break, and the magnetic connection between us was undeniable. I felt relief at seeing his face. I felt like everything was right in the world again, but still, I didn't initiate a reconciliation, really. Then there were three more weeks of school and then winter break, and I told the therapist that I had seen Dean, that he had flown across the country for me, and she basically convinced me that I needed to follow my heart, stop the misery which I was creating for myself by denying myself Dean, and get back together with him. I thought she must be right. I mean, she and everyone else were pretty much in agreement that I had fucked up the only good thing in my life, so... 
Winter break came and I saw Dean again and we decided to get back together. It lasted maybe four days and then he came to my house one morning, drove me to the bottom of the hill in my neighborhood and he said, I don't want to do this. I don't love you anymore. And he also said, we have nothing in common. I can't really remember that day, that conversation, what happened afterward. It's basically so traumatic that it's like blocked from my mind. I don't know how I got home that day. I don't know what I did. I just remember staying in bed for a month afterwards. That entire winter break, I laid in bed. I didn't shower. I didn't eat. I lost 10 pounds. I look back and I genuinely don't know how I lived through it. It was worse than the first breakup because it was just more hurtful. The things that Dean said to me, at least with the first breakup, I knew we still loved each other. And there was like a peace in that. But him telling me he didn't love me. That was like the most heartbreaking, devastating thing I'd ever heard. The second semester of my freshman year started and I was just a wreck. I don't even know how I got out of bed at home and back to campus. Um, School started up again. And once again, I took the bare minimum number of classes and did the worst I've ever done academically. I was just not a good student anymore. And that was hard. Being a good student, the type of person worthy of going to Berkeley was a huge part of my identity and going from someone who always got a 95 or above on every assignment to someone who was getting C's on her papers was an awful feeling. I felt like I was losing myself, like I was disappearing from my own brain. I barely connected with anyone socially and I barely had any friends because I was just stuck in my own hell. I never slept. I never ate. I would spend the nights wandering around the Clark Kerr dorm, listening to sad music and crying the whole night. I fainted a few times on campus because I was doing such a bad job of taking care of myself. In moments of weakness, um, I would text Dean and I would tell him I wanted to die. Um, he eventually asked his family friend, his mom's best friend, who happened to live in Berkeley, to check in on me. Her name was Aubrey and she called me one afternoon and talked me through different mental health clinics I could contact. I remember the phone call was so awkward because I couldn't really tell her the pain I was in was directly because of the Hastings, but I also was trying to be honest with her about my struggles. She told me to call her if I ever needed anything, but... Aubrey was the Hastings friend, not mine, and as nice as she was, I knew I couldn't call her and tell her about Dick and the groping or the maybe rape that happened in 2014. I couldn't tell her about the Ivy League. I just, I couldn't take her up on her offer as much as I needed it. The conflict of interest was just too strong. I did start doing to, going to a clinic that she recommended, doing my best to save my own life. Summer came and Dean and I saw each other a few times, but it was horribly painful for me to see him and not be able to kiss him, to not end the day in his bed. We tried to be friends, I guess, because we still had mutual friends from high school, but overall it just was not good for me. So when sophomore year started, I decided I had to cut him off once and for all. Um, I started with a therapist who was in private practice. The story and the grief were so immense that my therapist had me come twice a week for a really long time. Netflix started putting out a lot of originals and I would watch them and I started to get really paranoid. I thought that there were like hidden messages in the shows for me, like hidden threats, storylines so similar to my life that I felt mocked. I had to stop watching. I started to get really sick of hearing the word Netflix. I always felt really uncomfortable when people said, have you watched such and such on Netflix? I would do things to distract myself, like spend times with friends. And they would bring the horror back to my brain by simple phrases like, let's watch Netflix. I would listen to podcasts and they frequently would discuss which shows on Netflix they were binging. I would go on Twitter or Instagram and I would see ads for Netflix or viral tweets that were so hilarious from the official Netflix Twitter account. Something incredibly frustrating was the fact that no one had an issue with Netflix. Like, Plenty of people hated Jeff Bezos and boycotted Amazon. A lot of people hated Mark Zuckerberg and deleted their Facebooks. 
But Reed Hastings wasn't a household name in any way. Netflix was this platform that could do no wrong, and no one I knew, no one who I told the trauma to, not even my parents, would delete their account. The triggers were so intense, and they were everywhere. I would get triggered when I saw the logo, when I heard the word, when I saw people with the sweatshirt bearing the name of the Ivy League Dean was at. When people talked about sugar daddies or joked about marrying rich, I would get incredibly angry, constantly on the verge of screaming at these people that they had no fucking idea what they were talking about. One time I counted and I saw or heard the word Netflix 28 times in one day. There was no escape. I looked up countries where Netflix didn't exist, wondering if I could make a life for myself in Crimea, Syria, or North Korea. Eventually they expanded. The only place they're not in now is North Korea. I was really broken and I cried literally every day for a year. I eventually got on antidepressants and the crying was replaced with numbness. I tried pill after pill, but no happiness would come. I lived in this very specific hell. Pretty much the only thing that helped was writing songs about Dean. I wrote a lot of songs about him sophomore year, enough that I recorded an album the summer after and it came out in 2018. I always wondered, has he heard these songs? What does he think? But I never talked to him again. Um, we haven't spoken at all since the beginning of sophomore year. Um, and I think I'm probably going to die without ever hearing his voice again. Um, I continued to suffer all throughout college. I barely got my degree in many ways. I was so checked out in school. It was like happening in the background of my pain. Like it was not my focus. Um, Junior year, I decided to study abroad. I went to Brighton, England to study at the University of Sussex. I was really excited for a fresh start. But when I got off the plane, um, there was like a huge ad for Netflix in the train station that I went to, like after I got off the plane. So in the first 30 minutes I was there, I saw Netflix stare me in the face. I was in this new place, but Netflix was still everywhere. It was one of the most upsetting experiences of my life to really realize that my ex-boyfriend's dad was a modern king with a modern empire. It was a part of hegemony that I couldn't escape. Something good and cool that happened while I was abroad was that I started doing stand-up comedy. Um, and it was really nice to have another outlet besides songwriting. Songwriting and comedy were like the only things keeping me from killing myself, if I'm being honest. They're really the only things that have ever made me feel better. The idea that I could tell my story and get it off my chest really drew me into those hobbies. I wanted so badly to free myself from my pain and telling my story felt like the only option for moving on. And you know, there's like a million quotes and proverbs about truth as a way to heal. Speak the truth, even if your voice shakes. The truth will set you free. Speak truth to power. I became obsessive about freeing myself once and for all. I knew that I had to tell the story in order to move on. It also felt like a responsibility to call out what I had seen and everything wrong that had happened. It kept me from killing myself, this like sense of duty to report the story like a groundbreaking journalist. It wasn't really a positive thought, but it was an obsession that kept me alive. But every time I started to make moves to tell this story, I would get faced with a total lack of support. Pretty much everyone said, aren't you afraid you're going to get sued? Aren't you afraid that they're going to kill you? I don't think you should name names. Isn't there a way for you to tell the story without calling out the Hastings specifically? It really hurt me to hear from all these people that my only option was to be silent and to live quietly in my own personal hell. It just felt like there was no way out of my despair. Shut up, Kelsey. Shut up. Shut up. Shut up. Don't talk about it. Nothing infuriated me more than people caring more about Dean and Reed's reputation than my need to free myself from this prison. 
eventually, because of insurance reasons, I had to get a different therapist. The new therapist was helpful in some ways. They really validated my trauma and even diagnosed me with PTSD from this relationship breakup experience. But they also really fed into my already existent paranoia. And when I would talk about being afraid I was going to get murdered, they basically told me, you're right. The Hastings can kill you. You should be afraid. After really working on the paranoia previously, hearing that from the new therapist like really brought back my fears and anxieties and the paranoia got so bad that I had to stop seeing that therapist. And I, I don't know if they're right or not. I mean, Jeffrey Epstein was a millionaire, friend of billionaires, friend of politicians, and someone killed him. We don't know who. So there is a rationality to be afraid of getting killed for speaking out about this. Some days it feels dramatic to think that the Hastings would kill me. Like, of course, they're not going to do that. Like, they loved me. That would be such an overreaction. They're not going to do that. Some days it feels like a really real threat. I mean, he's one of the most powerful people in the world. He's one of the wealthiest people in the world. He could do it and get away with it. And yeah, it scares me to release this podcast. Like, I'm afraid of the consequences, but I'm more afraid of these secrets eating me alive and dying without ever telling the truth. So... I have thought about it, and if they kill me, they kill me, which I know sounds very morbid and crazy, but they're so powerful, like, I have to think about it, and I have to come to that conclusion for myself. I've also decided that if they sue me, I will just kill myself, because you can't sue someone if they're dead. So (laughs) I've decided to be brave and be honest, and maybe most people wouldn't have the guts to do that, but I've observed that generally being brave is preferable to being cowardly. And I think there's others like me out there and I want to help them know that they're not alone. So I finished college somehow and I remember graduating and looking back and realizing how little I enjoyed Berkeley because I was basically a depressed wreck the whole time I was there. I didn't experience Berkeley. It really just happened in the background of my own sadness. The entire college experience was like robbed from me, honestly, and it sucks. Like it's four years of my life that I can't get back. I started to finally feel a little bit better after graduation in 2021. Um, I made a TikTok in January with my song, Fuck the Bourgeoisie, and I put a summary of my story of my relationship in the text of the video. It blew up on TikTok. It got almost a million plays. And then on Spotify, it got a lot of plays too. It's currently at 300,000-ish. I also got messages from people who had dated children of other millionaires, billionaires, princes, etc., That was the most healing, wonderful thing that I could have gotten out of it. Probably the worst part of the post-breakup reality for me was how I had no one to commiserate with. People would be like, oh, I've been through a breakup, I understand. And it was like, no, you don't. You've never been through a breakup with the air of a giant media company that you can't run away from. So getting those messages from people who dated royalty, people who dated famous people, That brought me a piece I didn't know was possible, and I started to realize there were other people like me out there, and I felt less alone, and like a weight lifted off of me. I started to share more on TikTok and be more open about who I dated, and I realized it's my trauma, and I get to choose the coping mechanism. People had told me to shut up for so long, and then I finally spoke up, which felt right for me, and I instantly felt better. It was proof that other people's opinions of how I should handle this are just not relevant. It's up to me how I process this. And I know it sounds dramatic, but as I said before, like, I'm willing to die for this. Like, I'm willing to die for the truth. Like, if they do kill me, like, at least I'll die in peace. I know it sounds funny and, like, really over the top, but, like, it's a genuine thing I have to think about and it's a genuine feeling that I have. 
So now I'm starting this podcast and I'm looking for others like me. So if you dated royalty, if you dated a billionaire, if you dated someone powerful politically, please reach out. I would love to have you on the podcast. Maybe we can all start a group chat and be a support system for one another. I think I'm not the only one with this kind of story and I want to hear from you and I want us to talk and I want us to heal together. I know not everybody is in a place to name names, so we can work around that to a certain extent. But even if you just have a curiosity to be on the podcast, I want to hear from you. I'm willing to answer your questions. So let's do something groundbreaking together. And maybe these elites one day won't be so untouchable. Thanks for listening.